welcome everybody and good evening. This is the Department of Management Public Lecture. I am Barbara Fasolo. I'm a social professor in behavioral science here at the LSE, and I am the head of the Behavioral Research Lab, which is just around the corner. And that's the heart of a growing community of behavioral scientists um, here at the LSE. Uh, what do we do? We teach. We have talks like this. And we do research. And one of the recent uh, research collaborations we just started is with the Behavioral Insight team on a topic which is very dear to our hearts, which is education. We are trying to see how to uh, get more young people to uh, complete uh, further education. So it's really a great honor, and we're very excited to have here tonight to start the season of behavioral seminars, uh, Dr. David Halpern. Please join me in welcoming to the LSE, Dr. David Halpern. Sorry, yeah. sorry. See, I, I thought um, that was my cue. I, okay. That's great. You can just come over. Let's. Uh, did you, do you not want them to know your uh, amazing <laughs> background? Okay. The first time I heard David, there were fewer people, but um, it was just before the nudge unit. It was 2010, and I'm sure you don't know and don't remember that. You were talking about the last book, Hidden Wealth of Nations. And no, there was no nudge unit, but he couldn't sense that that was coming. Um, and he was talking about how behavioral science also could perhaps help address some of the biggest issues that we um, still have uh, in our wealthy nations, like social inclusion, uh, problems of fairness, problems of, of mobility. So I could see that it was coming. Um, a bit about you, a very mixed background, like most uh, behavioral scientists. Um, natural sciences, experimental psychology, political and social sciences, all uh, mixed up. I, there's a nice chime in the audience, and this is a reminder that we need to um, <laughs> switch off our phones, just like in the movies, because this is an event which is recorded, uh, also video recorded, uh, just to get the pressure high. So let's please just switch off our phones now. Um, what to say? You, you described yourself as a recovering academic because he did start in academia like uh, some of us. And after Oxford, Cambridge, a bit of Harvard, um, he decided before sabbatical to um, go on to secondment um, to government and never went back. Um, that position was chief analyst for Tony Blair at the Prime Minister Strategy Unit. And at that time, and then soon afterwards, as part of the Institute for Government, um, he wrote many influential reports. Not papers for A-list publications, but reports. And they sowed the seeds for uh, what is now known and we know as, as a behavioral insight team. Um, a report particularly that I remember is called Mindspace, and it's co-authored by um, himself and other behavioral scientists, including, um, including our own uh, Paul Dolan. Then, um, five years ago, he started directing this nudge unit, and there was a nudge unit, and he'll tell us all about it. Exciting stories, leaked documents, um, very interesting stuff. Um, but what, he's, what they've done in five years is really, is really stunning. At the recent conference that the Behavioral Insight team has um, organized, 
I have to be closer. Is that what you're telling me? Okay, closer. At the uh, recent conference, do I have to start again or just as it is? Great. Um, at the recent conference that, he's, um, that they've organized here in London, uh, we heard that there are, more than, there are about 50 units that are being set up, already set up all over the world, trying to mimic what they've been doing. Some are inspired and are advised by them, from Singapore to Australia and even uh, Italy, and I've been contacted about that, which is a bit scary. Um, last words about the book. If you're here because you're a bit skeptical and uh, cautious about the approach, um, the book is also about that and about challenges and uh, work that we still have to do uh, to make sure that behavioral change is, is for good, as Dick Saylor says. Uh, but for those of us who are enthusiastic about behavioral science, um, this is also a very good book. Finally, there's the answer that I never know how to, um, you know, there's the answer to the question I never know how to answer, which is how do I then bring back behavioral science to my organization? How do I convince skeptics and uh, cautious people? And uh, the answer is actually in this very healthy apple and fruit right here. And David, I hope, will tell us about um, what apples have got to do with it. Um, now, before I turn metaphorically the mic to David, uh, a couple of announcements. The talk is 40 minutes long, roughly. There will be questions and answers, and we try to finish by eight. At that point, um, David will be on stage for about 15 minutes to sign books. And uh, again, let's remember to have the phones switched off. I think that's all. Uh, so let's now enjoy David's talk. Finally, come here. Hi, um, don't take it personally. Actually, at our BX conference um, last week, we had our minister, cabinet office minister, and I managed to mangle up his introduction by getting it. So obviously, at least I do it to myself too, it turns out. Um, so just make sure I've got something I can actually change the slides with. Have I got a little clicker? That would be a really good idea. Um, let's, let's see, remember? Just yeah, that could uh, be really I'm useful. Let's touch, I just use the screen, do I? You think? Is okay. it a touch screen? Let's have a look. What do we do? Touch a screen? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I always would do that slide. It'd be fine. Touch it. <laughs> yes. Just touch it. No. So. That's a very interesting. How many behavioral scientists does it take to get this to work? Okay. They're coming? They are coming. <laughs> All right, well, look, I'll get started anyway. It's very nice to it be here. It's a picture of a um, book. <laughs> been here, actually sat in your seats many times in the past, listening to some great talks, um, be it from Richard Thaler, our friend, or from um, you know, David Labeson, many other fantastic figures. So um, I, let me just explain for a moment about what was the point of the book, why would we write such a thing. I guess we feel, I certainly feel quite strongly that if governments are going to use these kinds of approaches, it's rather important that they be quite open about it um, and say, well, to keep the public informed and be aware of it. And to some extent, we need, I think, permission from the public to use these approaches. We also, of course, have concluded these are very powerful approaches and we want public servants and others to be able to use them. And hence, you know, we try to put it into a, a usable form, not to have it locked away. Right, now would be a really good time for slides. Um, 
But uh, what do you History? think? You have a keyboard. I tell you, I'll let you do that. Very good. There we go. Ah. Okay, that's cool. I mean, just use the mouse. Then. Will that work? All right. The nudge was the keyboard. Very good. All right. So what I was going to try and do is um, <laughs> technical disasters um, allowing. Um, is I was going to kind of cover four things, which are broadly the types of issues which are um, covered in the book. Actually, can you hear me if I move away from the lectern? Is that still? No. no, you can't. All right. All right, so much for that, Mike. Um, okay, I'll stay at the lecture then. Thank you for that feedback. Um, so I'm going to cover four things briefly. So one is, what's the history of the nudge unit and nudging in Britain in particular, but also as it goes global? So I'll talk briefly about that. Then I'm going to talk about... Um, then I talk about some of the kind of basic approaches that we've, we've used in the second sort of section, and then some slightly more advanced approaches, and then I want to return at the end to some of the kind of big questions, I think, basis and some of the limitations that governments especially should think about if they're going to use these approaches. All right, see how we do. Oh, no, look at that. There we go. All right. Um, so the behavioral insight team is actually quite big now. This is just from the event in BX after the organizing and just some of the guys got together on stage and we're quite surprised by how many people there are on the team. It started as just seven people in 2010. The reason why I show you this picture, because as Richard Thaler points out in the forward, it, with the benefit of hindsight, it often seems obvious that behavioral insights would be an effective and useful tool in policy. Whereas actually, it was not at all the case, I think, if we think back to that period. Nor is it the case in many countries that are starting to use these approaches. You can't assume that it'll all go beautifully for some pretty clear reasons I'll, I'll try and elucidate. So let's just get on that short history then. So where does it all start? Well, it's not that governments never nudged before the nudge unit or the behavioral insight team, as it's called. Of course, they've long been doing it. This is a shot from one of the very early white lines pasted on a road in the U.S. in 1919, actually, two years before they appeared in the U.K. If you think about it, it's an absolutely brilliant idea. These newfangled motor cars are shooting around corners. They keep hitting each other. So I had the great idea, you, know, you could pass a law or have bigger fines. Why don't we just paint a white line down the middle of the road with a big arrow on one side? And dead man's corner in this case. Um, now, of course, it's also in some ways an example of local experimentation, which turns out to be pretty effective at reducing the, the number of cars that hit each other. Um, but if you think about it, it's a beautiful example of a nudge. It's just this little kind of reminder. You might want to go on this side of the road versus the other. Actually, the roads are full of that kind of example. And in the UK, until very recently, the highway code was basically advisory. In fact, a lot of it remains advisory. If you read it carefully, it says um, certain things. It says, no, whatever, we're good. Um, it says, you know, some things you must do, but actually quite a lot of things it says you should do. They're basically advisory. And when I learned to drive, even in the UK... Essentially, the highway code was still that. It was a code. It was, here's a really good idea when you're driving. Go on this side of the road versus the other. But the same is true of rumble strips or white lines or cat's eyes. They're these little cues that give you a hint about what you're supposed to be doing on the road, as well as, of course, other drivers shouting at you when you do the wrong thing. But these all count, in some sense, as nudges. And if you think about it, they're incredibly powerful. You know, they, they do make it much easier to get around without dying and make your economy function well. So, anyway, early example of nudges. Not we never did it. Oops. Um, okay. It draws on... I mean, it's a slight bastardization for psychologists in the audience, so I hope you'll forgive me, but I think at least three major traditions in psychology, but at least in this audience, as opposed to in government, I could indulge myself for a moment. 
Um, the first is almost kind of classical experimental psychology, the stuff we've been doing for more than 100 years to think about how people see and hear, right, fundamentally, a lot of perceptual stuff. This is, for those of you who've seen it, I'm sure many of you have seen this, these are Mac bands. This is where I'd love to wander around if I could get away from the lectern, but um, most of you should see it and how well it works on a projection. These look like they're shaded, those bands, right, but they're not. They're even, evenly colored, right? It's a very interesting, very simple but powerful illusion, Right? Can you see that? Do they look shaded to you guys, hopefully? Right? Yeah. Um, so why is that happening? In fact, a series of things that are occurring about nystagmus in your brain. Moves your eyes backwards and forwards all the time. It's sort of vibrating. If you look at someone's eyes, um, for example, as well as also think lateral inhibition in your eye. Why is it important? Because your brain is interested in edges. Edges really matter much more than flat areas where nothing happens. So a lot of your perception is tuned to change and edges and so on. So this might not seem it's got a lot of policy implications, but it has loads of implications for life, right? About how we, how we rate things, how we value things. So, in fact, price psychology is full of this around we're not very good often at estimating the absolute price or value of something, but we're pretty good at estimating it relative to something else, right? So lots of implications in that area. The second great tradition is really about um, what social psych, particularly the social psych of North America, and those, many of those classic fantastic experiments where look, how do real people behave and how do they influence each other, like the Milgram experiment here or Zimbardo. I think you had Zimbardo here a few years ago. Um, anyway, so fantastic experiments about how real human people behave and interact with each other. Then additionally, we've got um, the most recent tradition in some ways, boring out particularly of, of cognitive psychology, which is how people think and make decisions. Incredibly powerful, it turns out to be. This is the famous Tversky and Kahneman example. Around you see this list of numbers. Actually, Barbara's probably just in front of it. But um, you see one or the other for five seconds, and people ask, what do you think that adds up to, right? I'm sure some of you have seen this. Um, if you've seen the first one for five seconds, the average estimate is about 500-odd people think it would amount to. If you've seen the second one, you think it's a couple of thousand because the actual answer, I think, is 42,000. Um, but the main point is it's giving you a clue about you're using a very simple mental heuristic. You start by doing the calculation, 1 times 2 times 3, blah, oh, it must be something like so-and-so. You jump to the answer. In fact, it tells you, you, know, you, you make systematic errors in so doing. Of course, hugely relevant to a whole number of errors, and as far as those mental shortcuts will sometimes trip us up in the real world. Um, so you mentioned, actually, of course, when we had the strategy unit back um, when Tony Blair was PM, we did a number of pieces, big reviews, and one of the things we'd occasionally do is the so-called think pieces, which seemed cool at the time to call them, as opposed to the alternative you might wonder about, but um, which was a more reflective piece. Um, and one of them we did, I remember I'd, only, I'd been in Cambridge until a few years before this, I thought we should be using psychology and policy too, and more overtly think about what it means. And there was a lot of interest also in this linked issue about personal responsibility, so conditionality and welfare. Where would it work? Where would it not? Etc. So we wrote this piece, um, Personal Responsibility and Changing Behaviour, the State of the Knowledge and its Implications for Public Policy. And just to make sure everybody was clear, you can't read at the bottom, but it actually says at that bottom note, it says, note, this is an issue paper for discussion purposes and does not, underlined, represent government policy. All right? Anyway. Um, so we thought it was quite an interesting discussion paper. Um, I remember coming into um, the strategy unit that morning, looking forward to we're going to do the launch. It was already on the front page of the Times, unfortunately. And on the back of a one-line reference, which is a discussion about, essentially, price. When does, when does price and tax signals affect your behavior? You know, so, for example, how 
the introduction of unleaded fuel led to quite a rapid transition from leaded fuel on very small price differentials. Those of you remember that period? But would it do it for other things too? Anyway, the finer details of this were lost, I think, on the Times, who just had a big headline saying, PM Strategy Unit proposes fat tax. Uh, with, um, funny enough, still curiously topical today. Um, and um, sure enough, it kind of went mad, actually. Um, this is the BBC picking it up uh, later in the day, blah, 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 plans for fatty tax, blah, blah, blah. Um, a Downing Street spokesman, this is really good code if you watch Whitehall, a Downing Street spokesman said the government had no plans for such a tax, etc. No proposals of this kind have been put to the Prime Minister. I think it's called distancing it. Um, the actual discussion in the Times was, uh, there you get the kind of clue of how they were going with it, um, and uh, it was it picked up. Uh, of course, the mail, I think, had a wonderful thing, how much fat tax will Preza pay? The, um, and they had... They had estimates of the weight of different members of cabinet. Um, you can imagine how it kind of carried on. Um, sure enough, within a short time, um, the PM was out there for, you know, overtly, of course, we'd never do any of this kind of stuff. It's, um, people wouldn't like this sort of thing. It's all very nanny state. Um, now, it's an interesting lesson for most of us who are doing these things in government is that you can get hooked on one, one particular issue and it can derail the whole approach. Um, the idea that we'd never think about behavioral effects in policy because somebody misread it and picked up the idea of a fat tax. Anyway, but I mention this partly because it sort of seared on my soul, certainly, when we were thinking about this in the run-up to 2010. We didn't entirely stop in the wake of the paper. For example, there was a day as Turner's work on pensions, and we were clear to kind of make him aware of some of the interesting work occurring, not least Richard Thaler's work, about it might be defaults might be really, really important in relation to pensions. And he did pick that up, of course, and run with it. Um, we did do it in a few other policy areas too. Um, but a real further lift then occurs in 2008 with Nudge, the publication of Nudge, and then subsequently um, Cass, being pretty good friends with Obama, ends up in the White House and in OIRA. So that really took it to another level and helped to popularize the approach. It's interesting that it wasn't done by psychologists, but basically a lawyer and economist it takes to popularize the approach. Um, in the UK, we also carried on thinking about it, and certainly in the run-up to 2010, we had the then Cabinet Secretary, uh, Gus O'Donnell, who was a great supporter of it and very thoughtful, not least in the context of the, you know, the financial crisis and about how the models have been seeming to be quite misleading and mispredicting in terms of policy implications. So in the Institute at that time, we were a kind of summary, a mind space a report, um, thinking about what, um, trying to summarize that literature in the way that policymakers could use. And interestingly, we signed off by the end of the then Labour government, and particularly uh, Liam, before he wrote his note and left it in the desk. Um, and then, um, actually, also, you mentioned in, in The Hidden Wealth of Nations, I rather presumptuously had written in the back, not thinking... Uh, I would be having to be back in Downing Street to do it, but here's 10 things you might want to do if you were a prime minister, one of which is you should really take seriously looking at behavioural insights. We had had a go, actually, at doing it in the transition over to Gordon Brown, but it didn't really stick. Let's just leave it at that in that period. <laughs> okay. Still, you had basically lining together in that run-up to 2010 um, both political support, not least with Steve Hilton um, in, in number 10, um, but also administrative support. This is part of the Apple's formula, um, let's do something about using these behavioral approaches in government. So the idea was to set up a team and do something about it. This was the phrasing in the coalition agreement. Find intelligent ways to encourage, support, and enable people to make better choices for themselves. 
Um, so Richard also, um, you know, he'd written the book and earlier on and we'd done some work or whatever. So he turns up, in fact, in the early summer and we all ha went on a train actually to Paris because the French, we thought, might be interested in some similar things about well-being. Turned out Sarkozy wasn't at all interested in it, but we had a very good chat on the train over and back. And we tried to work out what we'd actually do on this um, behavioral insights team. In fact, literally also, what was the name of the team? And to try and figure out. And the idea, particularly from Rohan Silver, was that we'll set it up a bit like a skunk unit. And that, you know, how bad can it be? And basically, if it, if it doesn't work, we'll shut it down in two years. It'll be okay. Everyone will have forgotten by the time the election comes around. Um, so there's Ro, and actually, who was on TV last night, so I haven't seen him. Uh, on labor market, uh, Steve and actually James O'Shaughnessy in the background. And on the Lib Dem side, actually, we also had support, rather importantly. Um, so this matured into the, the team, as well as particularly with these characters behind us. So we had the Prime Minister backing us. We had Gus, Lord O'Donnell, who later then on to chair our academic advisory panel. So we had an academic advisory panel to, to reach out to the academic community. And Jeremy Hayward, um, then subsequently the Cabinet Secretary. So that was our sort of nascent team and a very small group. And who knows if it would work. So, did it work? Well, some of you, I'm sure, have seen some of these results, and forgive me if you have, I've just taken a selection. But the most basic application, particularly in those early days, is can you make some small adjustments to things, almost no marginal cost that would make a difference? And it turns out, yes, you can. Um, and we were very experimental, literally, because we also felt we had a very skeptical audience in Whitehall. A, it was the right thing to do, but B, in order to convince them, we would have to show them results. So here's some examples, and here's a very simple mnemonic, simpler than Mindspace, a mnemonic of, mnemonic of, new, um, of heuristics, a heuristic of heuristics, if you like, um, which is, I just use very loosely as a framework. Um, one of the interesting challenges, actually, for people here is sometimes said um, of why economics has more impact than psychology is that um, economics is pretty good at coming up with a simple number of theories, and psychologists will give you, like, here's a hundred theories for human behavior. <laughs> it's like, that's really great, thanks for that. One that works well would be great. Um, so this isn't quite that, but it's a very simple description of some of the key drivers that we see again and again in terms of behavior. So I'll just quickly use that to go through it. It's a new one. It's East. Easy, attractive, social, timely. So easy. Um, it's interesting, actually, even since we did the mind space work, I think one of the areas that was neglected was just the raw importance of what economists might call friction costs. It turns out, if you want someone to do something, make it easy, Right? You'd think it's obvious, but actually quite often in government, that wasn't what we do, right? We make things quite difficult to pay your tax or whatever it would be. It's a really powerful force in behavior, and it's not something which you can just say, well, assuming that. Um, oh, I've got to stop doing that. Here's a very simple example, I think, from our own history in Britain, um, which illustrates this force, um, which is suicide. So in the late 50s, in fact, you can see here the graph for men and women, the suicide rate started to fall. You know, first of all, people are like, oh, it's just an anomaly, whatever. It started to fall year after year, roughly for seven years in a row. And as you can see, it's quite a dramatic change over that period. And a lot of questions about why it was occurring. Was it like free love and we're all nicer to each other or something? But some of you might know. Do you know what the answer is? If you read the book, you will know. It was natural gas, exactly, yes. Yeah. So people used to kill themselves by putting their head in the oven. Um, that worked pretty well when gas was derived from coal, which had lots of carbon monoxide. But when North Sea oil was discovered and the gas with it, it was a gas which has got less carbon monoxide. And why do I tell you all this? Here's a pretty major decision in life, whether to kill yourself or not. It turns out that when it gets that much more difficult, because putting your head in the oven doesn't work anymore, the suicide rate drops 
pretty dramatically. Um, so there it is for carbon monoxide poisoning, and you can see there for other forms of suicide, and you can see it goes up a tiny bit, but nowhere near as much. So when people say, well, these frictional factors matter a bit, yeah, sure, we've got many examples where we can show just taking out one click in a process makes someone more likely to pay their tax or whatever. It's not like trivial matters. Really major issues in life are also driven by these frictional factors too. Um, for one everyone is famous for, it's really the poster boy for behavioral economics across the world these days, is defaults and pensions. This was just a very early cut as it came in in 2012 for first firms in the UK what happened in terms of enrollment. Amongst those who are eligible, the enrollment rate is more than 90%. In fact, almost exactly what we were seeing in the US on 401k. Since 2012, even without full rollout, we're talking about 5 million-odd extra savers, and disproportionately those who are the young and um, on, on lower incomes, interestingly. Why is this important? You know, 91%, that's pretty neat. Well, I don't know, if, if you had Raj Chetty in, talk about his work. You should sometime. Anyway, it's very good. Um, who's done estimates on the elasticity and try and work out for every pound or dollar of a tax subsidy, of which we spend tens of billions, um, how much extra saving do you get net? And the answer is about one penny is our best estimate for a pound of extra subsidy. So when you juxtapose those two things, you realize why people are going to get interested in behavioral economics and behavioral insights. If changing the default can have such astonishingly powerful effects versus the incredibly high level of a conventional tax instrument, it makes you think, boy, like, how can we not be interested in this? Make it easy. Uh, attract, a simple idea, basically, but it's got two levels to it. First of all, attracting attention. There's so many things going on in the world, but also is something actually attractive in terms of its profiling. So here's some simple examples. This is one. So well, would it work for, you know, maybe someone who's just, you know, good person they just mean to get around to it, but someone who's persistent. In this case, people who haven't paid um, their, their car tax. And in the UK, you get picked up on cameras, in case so you know, if you don't know already, worth knowing. Um, so these people who've been written to more than once by DVLA because they keep getting picked up on cameras and they haven't paid. So when they get their second prompt, see this is the number of people, still 40% respond. Well, the first thing we often do is just let's try and write the letter in plain English. Um, it turns out that helps a bit, worth doing, definitely. Um, said exactly the same as the original letter. I mean, that 2% is still very significant and worth doing. But the other thing we thought, well, why don't we just include the image of the car? The reason why you're getting this letter is because someone took a, a photograph of the car. So adding the image, yeah, it pulls it up really quite dramatically. Um, I have a story actually from uh, France. I, I, I think this is true. I was told this by a French official, which, you know. But um, the, in France, they, they actually were earlier um, doing this, and they would start sending the photographs if they picked you up speeding, and um, they, uh, they stopped because they started getting huge numbers of complaints because the cameras were good enough to see who else was in the car. <laughs> so apparently the joke is they now say, um, uh, if you don't pay, we will send the photograph. <laughs> um, anyway, lots of, uh, it can be really trivial things, even the envelope itself. Here's a simple example with, <laughs> which, with HMRC. We just thought, you know, there's a thing about does the envelope make a difference? You get a brown envelope from government. Do you put it in the top of your inbox? Maybe you don't. Why don't we try a white envelope? And also, um, just based on, again, actually some work on, on the lab and elsewhere, just get someone to write on it, you know, um, David, you really should open this. You know, so HMRC write a lot of letters. So they kind of think we're joking when we say, actually, why don't we try writing on the, uh, letter, the envelope? We thought, well, let's just try it. Um, there's the brown envelope. This is the proportion of people who pay within a given period of time. There's the personalized envelope. Um, 
So we did that for 5,000 envelopes, by the way. That's the N. So some poor sod had to write, you know. I always think, if you've got an intern job in government, um, <laughs> you want to watch out for that. Um, but anyway, it does illustrate the effect. And when you worked out even well, what was the cost of the trial, the return is 200 to 1 in terms of the return on the revenue. It's not that you'll literally do that everywhere, but you were making a point about everything matters. Here's a simple example. We work in other countries, but it doesn't always have to be letters. This is something actually in, in Australia, a large set of steps, which no one used to go up because they got up the escalators, and they just thought, well, let's make it pretty and see what happens. Um, it turns out a hell of a lot more people take the steps. Um, it run as a trial, so both in rush hour and off-peak, particularly off-peak, actually. Um, these are significant number, extra number of people who take the steps. Um, sadly, this trial was so effective, it ran for a month, that um, it was replaced by a huge picture of a beverage. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, maybe we'll come back to that. Um, social. We're incredibly influenced by what other people are doing, right? If you go outside, you can try this in the street outside sometime when you're bored. Just try pointing upwards and staring and see how many of your fellow students will join you. Probably quite a few. Of course, after a while, you'll be able to walk away because there'll be enough other people um, pointing up and it'll carry on and so on. Um, so this is one of the very fir- early examples, actually, also on tax, um, which was just... Well, what happens if we tell people who are late paying their tax that actually most people pay their tax on time? That's what we did. Add one line to the letter. So on a block of just 600 million of unpaid or late paid tax, there's the control letter, simplified, very nice, clean, simple letter. Adding that one line, would it make a difference? Yep, turns out it does. If you make it even more relevant, say, well, most people in your area pay their tax on time, even better. If we flip it around, it's an interesting side, by the way, on the littering um, evidence this comes from. Is if you go to a perfectly clean environment, generally speaking, the more litter on the ground, the more likely you are to litter. It's a huge effect. The one exception is if you go to a perfectly clean environment with one piece of litter, you're even less likely to litter because it's like, oh, that's the exception. So you can flip around the same thing and say, you know, Barbara, you are one of the few people yet to pay your tax on time. Um, that's even more effective. And if we say most people in your area pay their tax on time and you're one of the few yet to do so, even better. So this might not look a lot to you, but if you're HMRC and you're in the business of collecting literally billions of pounds of revenue and you can add one line to a letter and get this kind of improvement, it's really worth doing. Um, here's another one, um, also, so both attract and also social here, um, but illustrates a point which my uh, colleague on the political side um, would often make about being more human too. Some of the work we were doing in job centres on employment, we noticed that people often would be booked in for a job interview and they wouldn't turn up. In fact, even though we get a text, but even so, only one in ten would actually turn up for this thing. You know, you've been booked to a job interview, this fair, this Saturday, whatever. Um, well, what can, difference can you make? So if, if instead it said Barbara, and then the same text, they've got your name on it, there it goes. Personalised, more social, attracts attention. If I put my name on as well, Barbara, blah, 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 being booked a job, there you go. David, it's up there. If we have one other line as well, so it says Barbara... I booked you a place, so on and so on, good luck, David. Now we're at 27% turning up for the interview. What we don't have, but we would also suspect, not least from lab work, that people would also feel differently when they turn up. How would you feel about actually someone made the effort? Right. So um, very nice example of a kind of human touch too. The last one is timely. So one of the, I think, recurrent things we see is that actually it's not just that an intervention will work in general, it's when will it work. One of the reasons why retailers are really interested in whether you're going to have a baby or not is because your behavior will be disrupted. Right? You can switch brand as products and so on. Right? The same is true for lots of other areas. If you want people to take, take public transport, for example, 
Often, even doing one-to-one -one interviews and so on doesn't do very much. But if you do it when people have just moved house, it can be highly effective. So timely intervention. So I'll just give you a couple of those. One was in this period, um, some may remember, the PM was interested in, in increasing. In fact, there was a telegraph campaign called Legacy 10, encouraging people in their bequests to give more to charity. So we just thought, well, while the Treasury are trying to think about how many billions they have to spend on extra gift aid subsidies, why don't we just try a timely prompt and ask people, well, when will be the right time to ask? Well, when you're writing a will would seem a pretty good time. Obviously, government doesn't do that, but we just had a conversation with a large group of lawyers, and we said, you write wills? They said, yeah. Do you mind if you just, we could put into the script a kind of question? So this is control. That was a proportion of people before who made a bequest to charity in their will. Adding a question basically just saying, you know, would you like to? A lot of people do. More or less doubles it. Putting it in something like, actually, you know, are there causes you're passionate about? Because lots of other people give to their will. In their will, if you'd like to do that, we can do that. It increases it threefold, and it also doubles the size of the bequest. Right? It's just a huge effect. So obviously asking the right time is a pretty big deal. Here's another one um, just recently um, we did, which I think illustrates lots of points before we move on to the next section, which is that we'd noticed, um, if you work in lots of different policy areas, you'll gather, there's quite a big ethnic difference in the number of people getting into the police. And even when you look at you know, the proportions, the, the failure rate was often quite dramatically different. Not least in one section of the test, which is called the Situational Judgment Test, which was done online, and it's not marked by a human being. And yet the pass rate was 60% for the white applicants, 40% for the BMEs. Right? Lots of discussions about why this is, and it must be mastery of English or something else. You know. So you go, well, can we just try a timely prompt? So if you think you're going to do the Situational Judgment Test, you receive an email that says it's time to do the test. We just add one line. And what we do, using affirmation, essentially, say, before you do the test, just pause for a minute and think about um, why it's important to you and your community to join the police. Why was it important? That's the only difference, right? So let me just show you. This is the, this is the raw scores for um, the white population, and there's the BME. As I said, that translates into a pass rate of 60% versus 40%. This is adding the one-line prompt. You see the white population is unaffected. This is an RCT. There's the BME population. And when we look at the pass rate because of thresholds, in fact, it brings up the pass rate pretty much identical to the same 60%. So it gives you an illustration, I think, one which is, I think, sobering, too, where you think, how often in life do you think, I bet that's the right thing to say. <laughs> I wonder what it is. Um, it turns out there often is, and we don't know what it is until too late. So now I'm going to move on to, that was the kind of basic 101 stuff, into using it in a slightly more advanced way, uh, particularly for you guys. So let me skim through this. So as a policy tool. Well, sometimes the interventions have to be more elaborate than just changing a letter. One area, a good illustration of this, is getting people back to work faster. Where in order to change the job seeker's behavior, we felt we had to change the advisor's behavior. One thing we've done for many years, not least based on active welfare policy, as promoted by people like um, Richard Layard, rightly, um, is to say to people, you've got to show that you're looking for work. Active search stuff, right? That rings true for you economists, I'm sure. But what we've done for 30 years is ask people, what did you do last week? As opposed to, we thought, wouldn't it be better to ask what you're going to do next week? I mean, a couple of changes, but that's the key one. Would it make a difference to ask people, essentially using implementation intention, what you could do next week? So it would be Barbara, if I pick on you again, might say, um, so what kind of work are you looking for? And you say... Academic, of course. 
academic, of course. Um, so um, we know you're very busy, but how are you going to go about finding that dream job you're after? And you'd say... Asking friends, maybe I'm going to look at jobs.ac.uk. Very good. So we're getting specific ideas. And we say, I know you're quite busy, even though you are an academic. Um, <laughs> and... Um, I was not an academic so then. Maybe I was when would be, be a good time? <laughs> would it be like in a morning, afternoon? Anyway. Probably as soon as I have my espresso. <laughs> Very good. You get the gist of it. So we're prompting Barbara in specific ways, when, how, where. Would this make a difference? So that's what we do. That was our original control group. That's our treatment group. And this is the number of benefits of 13 weeks. Huge effect. It's pragmatic design, so we strip out any kind of contamination. We're still pretty confident we're getting at least a 5% treatment effect. Again, that might not seem huge to you, but it is huge in terms of government, in terms of people back to work. We've since replicated, not only is that a national policy now, but um, we've replicated that in at least two other countries with even larger effects, prompting to people about what you're going to do next week. Um, where it often gets more profound, though, is things like if you think about a market, what makes a market work? So we, we touched on the issue earlier about friction and why it's important and make it easy. I mean, utility has been, utilities and electricity have been a huge issue politically in the UK, as you all know, for the last few years. And um, one of the questions is, should you, you know, should you literally restrict the number of tariffs or reduce the number of tariffs or cap them or all these kind of things? Well, I, I mean, actually, I could ask you guys, how many of you have switched your utility provider in the last year? You'll bear with me. So quite a few. How many of you have not? Go on, be honest about it. Oh, so the vast majority, right? Okay. So I was just one of you guys, the latter, when I had to go and talk to the PM about this, about switching. So I thought, this is stupid. I'll try it out, whatever. Um, I spent the weekend trying to do it. I failed to switch, I should say. It turned out I needed a certain kind of number, which wasn't on my bill. I had to call up the provider and get that before I could use a switching site. Actually, my wife is much smarter than me. She sat in the front. She did manage to do it. But um, the point was, you kind of feel like it's not coincidence. There's quite a bit of friction in the market to make it more difficult for you who've got better things to do. So what could we do? Could we imagine it was possible to take out some of that friction? Um, so actually, we did talk nicely to the energy companies for a while, and um, they thought about it really hard and then said, no. Um, LAUGHTER so we did use a bill in this case to force it. But basically, on your bill from these days, in fact, it should have happened this summer, you should see a QR code. And the, why is that significant? It summarizes your data. So then all you need to do, with the help of a switching site, is put your phone against it, and it will tell you in about a second, well, given your usage and so on and so on, these are the best tariffs for you. Would you like to switch? Click here. Right? You see why that is a game changer in terms of market operation. It's not a specific tweak on a letter, but it's using behavioral insights in order to change your regulatory approach. There are a lot of markets that have got these same characteristics. Try to mobile phone, which is the best network phone tariff combination. You could figure that out. Literally millions of combinations and so on. So it's an example of using it in uh, policy. Other areas, here's one um, very different. A lot of stuff that flows through a place like number 10 are you don't have time to do a trial. You have to take a view. You read the literature. And one that was kicking up, certainly from around 2011, was what to do on e-cigarettes. Um, and a lot of countries have moved to ban e-cigarettes. Well, we took a view on basic behavioral principles, but also some of the evidence we felt already out there, is that where you've got an addictive behavior, generally much easier to drive a substitution than to get someone to quit entirely. 
So, not entirely popularly, there was some difference of view. We essentially pushed for a much lighter regulatory framework in the UK context to make sure e-cigarettes are widely available. Um, these are quit rates, by the way, for different channels in the UK. These are e-cigarettes. E-cigarettes are now, of course, the primary channel for people quitting smoking. It's a huge effect. If you do something, if you're an economist, you like to move a bit of these things, interesting exercise to do is to work out how much, given NICE's, you know, 30 to 40,000 pounds a quality we would pay, would we pay for a drug that's having the scale of impact in terms of lives saved for e-cigarettes? So, yeah, a lot. Um, actually, one of the things I thought I'd at least mention it, and hidden wealth I still think is relevant, is using reciprocity in more profound ways, so particularly about the economy of regard. So one thing we're terrible at doing public services is asking of others. Actually, when you talked about how you were going to get your new job, you first of all talked about talking to people. Weak ties, right? Granifetta. Um, but we don't do that in job centres. I mean, isn't that crazy? Why don't we say, you look, you know, you're trying to find work. Hey, it turns out you want to be a painter. You know, we know like 500 painters. Would you like to talk to one of them? We don't do that. Or in healthcare, we say, yeah, the visiting hours are the following, you know, as opposed to, yeah, come in, make yourself at home, you know, help. Here's a, um, a patient hotel in Sweden. And you'll notice the pretty obvious difference in the room, which they always have. It's part of a hospital, I should say. Um, two beds. And people are actively encouraged to stay. Uh, what is the outcome? Higher patient satisfaction. It's not surprising. Lower costs. Better clinical outcomes. Why on earth wouldn't we design public services to harness that desire that people normally have to reciprocate? Um, and kind of top of the period in some ways is well-being. I mentioned in passing that the PM was interested in this. Many people who study... Um, you know, behavioral insight, behavioral economics get interested in this um, because it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, big decisions in life are also, it looks like we often use the same mental shortcuts. As Danny Gilbert puts it, one of the wonderful things about humans is we're time travelers. We can go into a past and we can go into the future. We're just not as good at it as we think we are, so we make systematic misproductions. So one interesting question is, if we use behavioral insights, what are the policy implications? I won't go through them now, but that might move us in terms of our life satisfaction. You'll notice lots of countries on a given level of GDP seem to have higher levels of life satisfaction. Is that just fluke, or do they do things differently? Is there a reason why the Danes are so preposterously uh, happy compared to us, for example? Why should they higher life satisfaction? And it's been going up for 30 years, interestingly. We don't think it's a coincidence, but if it's, if it's shrouded as an attribute, as Leibson has talked about in this very room, then people aren't going to be able to make intelligent choices. Um, where next? So my kind of conclusion, really. Um, let's draw together some thoughts. Well, as explained, um, people were pretty sceptical when this got going early on. Um, these are some of the uh, headlines. There were some, actually, you get the gist of it. Uh, nudge unit should be given the elbow, etc. cetera. Uh, Cameron's vanity project. Um, but what happened is, as the results started to flow in, in the way that I've just shown you some of, and I think we've probably up to about 200-odd trials now in the BIT, um, in progress or done, um, opinions changed. They changed in the media. They certainly changed inside Whitehall. I mean, perm secs aren't dumb, heads of departments. If they think, really, actually, you could change a line of a letter and have a big impact, then why wouldn't you do it? And why wouldn't you do it, particularly in the context of austerity and a government which generally wants to deregulate, not create more regulation? Still, there are lots of other questions, not least as it spreads from the UK to a lot of other places. Um, some of those places we ourselves are working with World Bank or UNDP to use behavioral approaches. Um, one of the questions has been, would it work in other countries? Um, we worried, of course, whether 
um, a body of work developed itself in U.S. universities, often with U.S. undergraduates, would work in the U.K. population, turned out often did. Um, the same question applies as you move internationally, but um, I'll just show you one. We were asked recently by the World Bank to help in Guatemala now um, on, on tax compliance. Um, for those who study uh, Latin South, uh, South America, you'll know that um, they do have an issue. I love this phrase. The phrase, of course, is tax morale. It has low tax morale, you know. <laughs> That's a great euphemism. Um, and Guatemala particularly so. So we're like, really? Do you think techniques were developed on HMRC and our, you know, UK population? Would they work? So this basically is a letter trial. There's a number of things going, but I'll just show you the results. Um, and uh, this was some of the effects. Um, there's our, this is the, I'm expressing this in terms of dollars. The number of dollars were paid after the interventions control. Um, okay, this is an, the original letter which people got, and you can see, you know, not too well. We tried to write the letter, because this is Spanish, um, so we were relying on others, but to write it in a way we thought people might actually understand what it says. Turns out that works pretty well, um, not to be... Um, neglected. Another one we say, you make reference to national pride. It matters, you know, to pave your heart. That also works pretty well. Social norms are the one we really thought, you know, really, Guatemala. So we had to work quite hard to find a stat which would support that most people did. But it turns out, this particular tax we found, 62% of people did in fact pay it. Now, you wouldn't be very impressed with that in the UK, but in Guatemala, people are like, really? 62%? <laughs> It turns out, by the way, it's a general phenomenon. You might notice that the conference with some data was released in five, six countries asking people about, you know, do you cheat on your tax or do you take a sickie and whatever? And how many, what do you think of other, what proportion of other people do? It turns out on all the kind of basically vices and cheating, we think everybody else is really at it much more than they are, which is kind of an interesting result. It turns out in question marty. And that affects your own behavior. It turns out it has a really big impact. And then the last one, almost a very similar strategy to use on, on a particular bit in the UK, I didn't talk about it, but where you say it's an active choice. So, again, Dan Ariely, if you know his work, often talks about, I mean, most people cheat a bit, right? If it's not, oh, it's not really cheating, I didn't fill it in. A classic example in tax is you get to a bit of a tax system where it's like, can you please tell us about other income? Can you fill this in? It's like, people very happily, it turns out, skip that question. <laughs> but if you turn it into, like, particularly in an online form, you have to write something, but you can write nil. Lots of people who were skipping then start writing in some actual numbers. So we don't like to actively cheat, but we're quite happy about passively cheating. So essentially this letter tries to crystallize out and says, you know, we kind of assumed before you might have oversight, but now we're going to assume it actually is a deliberate choice. You know, huge effect. So it turns out this stuff does work in lots of other places too. Who'd know it? Wherever human beings are, we have some of the same ways of thinking about the world. Um, the other thing I just mentioned in terms of what's happening now, and also note why it's potentially controversial, is the next step is to say, well, who does it work for? Again, I'll use a tax example. It's simple. I mentioned earlier, you saw that slide about social norms work. And when we said to Barbara, most people in your area pay your tax on time and you're one of the few who's not, um, that sort of social norm, it turns out works on 95% of the population to increase their tax payment rate. It's too bad there's this other 5% who it doesn't work on at all. And actually it backfires and they become less likely to pay tax. They're an important segment because they're the ones with the biggest tax debts. So if you segment literally by tax debt size, the top 5%, and particularly the top 1%, when they receive this message saying most people pay on time, become even less likely to pay their tax. I guess the point is, I'm not like everybody else. 
Um, so, but the question is, can you work out something else? It turns out we did. So one message we looked at was just saying to people, it's really important you pay your taxes because it pays for schools and hospitals and so on. That doesn't work very well in general populations. There it is. But if you take that top group with big tax debts, that is to say more than £30,000, it has a really big impact, especially if you word it in terms of a loss. If you don't pay the tax, it means we are unable to pay for X, Y, Z. Um, so it's a very interesting, you can see it, you glimpse into the power of being able to not just do these things in general, cast similes, things like that, but things which are tailored to individuals. You might also think about, do you want government doing that? Do you want government figuring out who you are and what will be the best message for you personally? Um, so it's been proven to be impactful on lots of levels. These kind of processes, nuts and bolts, letters, texts, you know, we send... It turns out we send kids um, in FE colleges a text saying, using implementation intention, looking forward to seeing you on Monday. You reduce the dropout by um, more than a third. Lots of these things can be very powerful. You can also use it in relation to policies, actually fundamentally thinking about markets or about what regulators do. Um, I'm really delighted, actually, we now have the Competition and Markets Authority, which is a really sophisticated, I think, world leader thinking about behavioral insights in relation to regulation. And then for some of you, you know, who want to go there, there's this question about does it also have impacts on more fundamental goals about what government's doing and if utility maximizes, what can government do? So, for example, some of the well-being data now gathered in the UK, just to put it in the public domain, we put a graph out, for sort of, and it just shows not only what do you earn in different professions, but it shows you life satisfaction for different professions. It seems to me it's a pretty useful thing to know if you were 18. Well, actually, what is the earnings, fine, of doctors and lawyers, but also what's their satisfaction? turns out, by the way, medics have higher life satisfaction. Um, so it's not literally causal, but an interesting clue. Um, and the other thing, I think, in the end, interesting what you guys think in a minute, but it's possibly the most radical impact of the Pavel Insight team in the UK and more generally is it's brought into government the experimental method in a really quite a high-profile way. Even if you didn't care about any of this behavioral stuff, the basic idea of why don't you run experiments and figure out what works as opposed to saying, hey, I've got a great idea, I put it in a manifesto, let's do it on everyone, right? Um, and that's led to specifically the What Works centers, one of which linked to LSE. Mm -hmm. NICE being the original, you know, we tell clinicians, give them, we collate the evidence, say here's, this drug works as well, or doesn't for the particular population, but why not do that for everything? So that is starting to happen. We have the Educational Endowment Fund. Now, how, many of, how many of you have heard of the Educational Endowment Fund, actually? Can I all right, so very few of you. Um, it's an incredibly interesting institution. It's only been around since 2011. It's run more than 100 large-scale trials in the UK involving more than 4,000 schools and half a million kids. We're actually systematically trying to figure out what is a better way of teaching kids. And it's got some incredibly interesting, surprising results already. Early intervention, I won't go through more. Local economic growth, that's the one which Henry Overman here is involved in. Superb. We spend billions, give it to local regions. Wouldn't it be good to know what actually works in terms of how you might spend that money, right? Is it really beyond the capacity of those in the room, let alone in government, to figure out answers to those questions? Crime reduction, better aging too. This is the kind of output they have, this Educational Endowment Fund, just to show you. What's the impact in terms of months advance? What's the cost? How confident are we in it? So, last thing, really. Who nudges the nudges? I do think one of the reasons for me writing the book is to ask this question too. Um, it's rather important. If you conclude this stuff is potentially pretty powerful, it is also rather important to ask, well, who is nudging the nudges? Who is saying it's okay? For Adair Turner and the pensions reform, to me it was very important that the public basically gave government permission to change the default. 
If you want to do stuff on obesity or many other areas, I think governments need to do the same. We're going to have to engage our publics quite deeply and sincerely and say, here's the evidence, what do you really think? It's about your lifestyle, your behaviour. The picture of UCL, obviously, is reference 1984. Um, is that our future, or is it going to be something more positive? And the last thing is, does it have... Look, I've shown you some of the things we've been doing. Um, does it have relevance to other challenges today? Surely, yes. Think of the choices. Many governments are drawn into this area, even if they don't want to, because of how modern markets operate, not just physically, but online. Really important, the behavioral effects and how do they play out. In terms of pollution, right, or other kinds of issues, they're riven with behavioral effects. Obesity, I mentioned, is pretty strongly behavioral. And indeed, in general, remember, more than three-quarters of years of healthy life lost are to known behavioral factors. That's not where we spend our money or effort in healthcare mainly. In terms of what's happening in a classroom, how you give a feedback or so many other details that turn out to be so critical, or what happens even inside households and how we parent. Trust in the economy, that animal spirit stuff, really important. We shouldn't just say, well, that's a footnote. That's central. People, businesses are making predictions about what they think other people are doing. It's self-prone to error, right? We can unpack that and do something about it. And even issues of conflict across the world, right? Are we really saying, surely... Psychology ought to have something to say which is relevant to policymakers in terms of these big challenges. So, just a conclusion. Um, thank you for your time today. I wanted to say sort of three things you know, for those in the room, really. Um, I think for those of you who are academic, many of you, um, if you've got good ideas and thoughts, let's use this. Let's use the psychology. Let's get it out of the academy. Let's use it on these real-world issues. And by the way, I think you'll discover a lot of incredibly interesting theoretical things as we go along. It's a pretty... I know you like lab work... I mean, the real world as a laboratory is a very powerful and testing place where often theories don't make it, too. For those in policy, the point partly about the book is, and, and, and more generally our work is to make this accessible so that anybody can use it and be more intelligent and have a more nuanced account of how they, um, what, what it is they're doing. And finally, for the public, I guess I've tried to make clear, I think it actually does matter greatly that there is a certain kind of public input into what are the limits about what we want governments and business is in terms of using of these approaches. And to some extent, the public needs to be in the business of nudging the nudges. So thank you. Thank you all. Long clap. Thank you. Thank you very much for this thought-provoking talk. Um, now we'll, we'll open the floor for questions, but I'll start with the first question, given that I'm so close to you, and I'm not going to be telling you about uh, whether I pay taxes or not, or if I'm looking for a new job. Uh, my question is about small changes. Oh, is, this is this working? Can you hear me? Um, so you talked about some small changes that make things easier. They get us to think in a way less. And you talked about changes and make things or thinking a bit harder. They get us to think about why is it that something is important. So there are two types of changes. One for the fast, kind of automatic, lazy part of us. One is for the slow, deliberate part of us. Of these two types, which of the two are most important or make the biggest difference, do you think? Um, well, look, they're both clearly important. Um, Partly the fundamental point is that we... Sorry, can you hear me? I, um, the, the fast stuff gets ignored. 
So Whitehall and governments across the world are full of very rational people who think that a decision is made because you weight it very carefully about a pension or anything else. And they are, we have historically been neglectful, as it were, of the fast bit of the decision-making, all the thousands of decisions we make all the time. But so is the public. That's one of the reasons why we got to engage it. So an issue like um, on obesity is that the public um, themselves, and most of us, we should include ourselves in it, just are not really aware of the force of the influences, plate size, portion size, sequencing, um, that are affecting our choices. So it's just it's fundamentally neglected, right? So... Um, it, the second part is clearly important too, rightly so, um, but it's, it's the neglect of the first part. I mean, to give you a real example, so on something like right to buy, so most, you, know, you may or may not agree with it, but the government pursued a policy of encouraging people to buy social housing. The central question, you can imagine, as it's discussed in government, is, well, how big should the discount be? There are all these people who should want to buy this house. We want them to buy the house. Maybe the discount needs to be bigger. Now, every time you move that discount, you know, so instead of your house costing 200000 you're getting it for 150 or whatever, um, that's very large amounts of money. What nobody will spontaneously do is say, well, let's look at what happens. What does someone have to do? Well, someone who hasn't had a mortgage before has got to go and get a mortgage, maybe with lenders who aren't used to talking to people like that. They've got to prove how long they've lived in the house, right? And, you know, there's a whole sequence of questions. They've got to see a survey. No, done a survey before. Lots of frictional elements. So it turns out, in our view, those things are incredibly powerful and important. And if you spend a bit of time on those, you may find a much cheaper, more effective solution. But on the slow bit, let's not forget it, though. One of the reasons why you want to, you know, we collectively have to make, we make different decisions on reflection. And that's partly the point about the public engagement. So in a debate on something like, well, if, let's go back to a historic one, like on pensions defaults. You know, you can engage people and say, look, let's look at all the evidence, um, and let's think about it and let's look at what's driving your behaviour and then you might well conclude well wouldn't it be better if you changed the defaults because I know that I won't get around to doing that we can kind of we, we you know at ECSR Star we, we can lock ourselves into that using our brain collectively as well as individually about the decisions I'd like to make so it's clearly both really important it's just that the first bit got neglected Great. So because both are really important and uh, because reciprocity is very important, I'd like to start thanking you for this uh, answer with our first gift. Um, on behalf of a lab and the Department of Management, this is a squeezable brain, which is also a relaxed nudge, which um, we, th we felt to personalize, so I put David there and also signed it. So here we go. And uh, <laughs> we... Um, you, you, you can squeeze it as, as you, as you uh, answer to the questions that now are going to be posed by the floor, both downstairs and upstairs. And if all works to scheme, also our assistants have brains, should have, um, should, should have brains to give out to the people posing the questions. The brains can be squeezed and are a kind reminder to please state your name and affiliation and make your question really a question. So a short a uh, sweet question for, for, or not, for David. And we will take one at a time because our mind cannot take more than one. We will start from here because we're going to be handing out the microphone and the brain, but we're going to go there and then we're going to rotate up until 8 o'clock. The first I saw was just smack in the middle there. So if we could please have a microphone and the brain to the white shirt uh, there and then to the black um, so it's jacket. like an incentive. You get a brain if you ask a question. Yeah. How could I possibly resist? <laughs> uh, 
Um, my name's Elizabeth Marsh. I'm Director of Research at Digital Workplace Group. Um, so at the recent um, conference, Daniel Kahneman said, you know, we have so much poor decision-making in organizations, and this is, this is a huge problem. He said one of the next big areas for behavioral economics is, you know, is, is actually to improve the decision-making. Yeah. What would be your advice for organizations who are basically often quite adverse to an experimental approach in terms of setting up their own nudge, nudge unit, in terms of making that effective, but also the kind of ethical discussion? Yeah, it's one of the... Um because Danny himself, as you gather, Danny Conham is, is working with a big commercial organisation that makes certain kind of decisions. Um, there's a whole parallel issue about inside organisations, including leaders, I'm sure you do it on your programme, um, are subject to the same sets of biases, and Max Bazeman and others have written about this. Um, also, fascinatingly, in terms of the decisions they make, for example, around incentives, where we think, well, why do we think other people are motivated primarily by money when most people themselves don't think they are? And hence Mike Norton's work and so on about changing incentives. There's lots, it's a very rich area, actually. Um, so, um, I mean, we use the argument quite often. Um, I mean, we're obviously primarily focused on public sector, but like, why wouldn't you want to experiment? There are some practical issues, but why do you think what you're doing already is the most effective way of doing it? And certainly around margins where you've got some choices about how you design an incentive or a reward scheme or... Um, you know, but so I think there's enough in the literature now to to make a very strong prima facie case that many organisations could improve their performance using some behavioural insights um, in a whole range of areas. So then the challenge becomes for many of us, certainly on the the, the academic community, to then test those systematically inside organisations. Um, and there's definitely a growing appetite to do that. Um, Great. Um, uh, I'm Stuart Theobald. I'm a uh, philosophy PhD candidate here. My question uh, is methodological but also practical. How do you divide your effort between the theoretical work of, of building the theories to come up with ideas and the work of experimenting to see what works? And is there a risk of experimentation going theory-free and crazy with essentially randomised attempts at different things? And is that something we should, you know concerned about or in terms of resource allocation and yeah. theory versus experiment work? Well, we're not an academic. I mean, as you said, I'm a recovering academic myself. Um, so we, but a lot of my friends are still academics. And um, um, so we do spend a lot of time trying to read the literature and understand what's going on. And we're always very much an open door. So it's a sincere um, actually offer, really. If you've got a good idea on any given policy issue, you think some theory, theory is, is, is relevant then we're absolutely open door to that. Um, that was partly the point about this conference, of course, bring together the academic and the policy communities, in fact, from 24 countries we had present um, in that kind of way. Is there a danger? Yeah, there is. I don't think it's that great a danger. The danger is much more the other way, which is that, look, if you think about almost any process, let alone any complicated government process, there are so many choices that are there. Um, Lord Freud has said in relation to welfare reform, for example, that there are 300-odd decisions he had to make and he doesn't know if he made the right one. But what he did do is he got into legislation the explicit power to be able to also experiment. So, you know, you work out the number of combinations for if you've got 300 variables and so on. It's just a crazy number. So you're going to have to be guided in some way. So you, you need some kind of theory to go in there with, in our view, and have some a priori thoughts about what might be effective or not. We do twin the sort of 
the classic standard literature with you know, much more ethnographic approaches, if you like, to try and get into the process and see what's going on. So um, I think there is a danger, but it's not exactly the one that you describe. Um, so, yeah. The other smaller side, by the way, is that we do have interesting examples where, including some lab work, we have done stuff which didn't work, which did work in the field and then didn't work in the lab. Like, you know, it does work in practice but didn't work in theory. Um, and um, I even think that some of the corrections, I mean, I started with easy but deliberately, is that um, I, I think that uh, the literature is, it was much too neglectful of frictional effects, right, in, in real-world context. Or even I've given the example of, you know, quite often we have an arm which is just write something in plain English. And um, it turns out it's really important. Um, and it probably is not of great interest to most journals if you write something in a way that people can understand it. It has a big impact. But that's a rather important finding, it turns out. Great. Let's have a question at the back, and then we'll move upstairs. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm Ivana Kutusa. I'm from CNN. Um, you gave us a great line of examples of successful approaches, that mm. things that you changed and that led to great changes. Can you give us some examples of misses, of things that did not work out, that perhaps you were surprised by, uh, that, that didn't work as well as you would have wished for? I can, and much to the horror of um, much of government, we are happy and we do publish things that don't work. I think it's really important. But we put a report out just before BX a few months ago, which had a whole list of recent things. We had to wait till after the election, but um, that uh, included a whole number of failures. And when we did a, a briefing on it to the media, people were like, but it included things that didn't work. It's like, yeah, because some things don't work, right? That's the, that's the point. And if you... Um, of an experimental method. It's rather important for Whitehall to learn and governments that that's how it's going to be. Um, it's inevitable. Um, so, yes, to answer your concrete example, so um, often what we do, by the way, is you de-risk it by running multi-arm trial. So that's a pretty... If you are discussing with a ministry or grand idea, um, pitching it only as a pure RCT is a bad idea. It's like, we're going to try it, our idea, Minister, and we're going to try it against control. So it's basically either going to be great success or going to be an utter flop, and there's not much in between, you might say. Whereas if you say, Minister, that is such a good idea, let's try eight different versions of it. And it's, you know, some of them will work better than others. So we've certainly had lots of examples where we've had an arm of things that didn't work. So, in fact, literally an eight-arm version on organ donation where we found that adding an image of happy people um, queuing up to give their kidneys or whatever... Um, actually was worse than the control of no prompt at all. <laughs> but fortunately, there were lots of other things, particularly, in fact, using reciprocity, that led to a higher sign-up rate. Another example, actually, which stemmed partly from lab work, which is the idea, I'm, not, I'm picking on you because of lab work, it's not fair, but, um, which was in terms of home insulation, where there was some work, actually, I think, from Portsmouth, um, suggesting um, that if you show people a picture of their home leaking energy, like an infrared picture, that this would be quite powerful, and it seemed a nice idea, so we ran a trial and it didn't work at all, um, which is interesting. In fact, we quite often see this with images. Images often have complicated effects, maybe because they distract or dilute um, in those sorts of ways. But, you know, it's, it's actually getting government to the point where some things won't work. Indeed, a null result is not a failure. Like, sometimes it's really worth knowing that. God, you know, you were about to spend £2 billion on that. Phew. Turns out you don't need to because it wasn't going to do anything. Do you know what I mean? So, um, it, but it's a non-trivial matter. I, I dwell on it a bit. So, I mean, Daily Mail ran a story even a few weeks ago saying, government's got it's outrageous. Government's experimenting. You know, it's trying things out. It's like, 
what's the alternative? I mean, seriously, it's, it's rather important arguments to be made about what is the correct ethical position. Is it ethically worse to do trials, or is it ethically worse to just take a punt? I think I know what my position on that is, but not everyone agrees. Thank you for that. Um, and now we're going to go upstairs, and I'd like to indicate the person there at the very far end corner, if we can reach that, and then we will move to the middle there. There was that first hand. Yes, pinkish shirt. Brain, yeah. Brain. Evening, Doctor. Thank you very much for an excellent presentation. The name and the affiliation. <laughs> no brand. My name is Stuart McIver. I'm the owner of Get Best Brand. Uh, my question to you is a, a fairly straightforward one, uh, both in uh, public as well as in uh, private organizations large. Normally, it's incredibly difficult to get from the trial to a deployment to achieve scale. Your recent publications on the, on the BIT website really impressed me in the sense of the number of your programs that got to significant scale. And I'd love to know your secret on how you achieved that. Well, it's half full or half empty, right, since we're amongst friends. I mean, the, um, uh, I do think one of the key challenges is scaling up, um, which is that I think the truth is that most of our trials haven't got to scale yet. And that is an absolutely pivotal challenge and there are lots of reasons like there are some examples that have so for example the thing on the job center stuff is now national you can go to any job center and you'll get my job plan it would be called it's got it in there um but there are lots of things that don't and they don't diffuse that's one of the points about the what works initiative in general um there's a stat because often quoted i think possibly slightly bogus but in even in medicine that um you know once someone's established a new practice being effective it still takes 17 years to reach widespread diffusion which is really depressing, even if it's half true. Um, so uh, we, we, one of the things we do is very practically, in the design and the prototyping, um, this isn't theoretically very interesting for our philosopher friends probably, but we do try and keep an eye on how easy is it to scale. So one of the reasons why we spend a lot of time filling around what look like small details is because if you can figure out a better way of adding this line to a letter, in principle you can click, you know, you can pull a switch and then do it for a million people as opposed to... Uh, a thousand. So we have that as one of the criteria in the early design of the trials themselves to think of things which are more likely to be scalable. And there are certain examples where you think, oh, God, that would be so neat, but we can't see how we can scale it. So that is a relevant factor for sure. Great. Then the question there. Hi, good evening. Uh, Peter McManus, I work for the CBI. Um, but I've, and uh, thank you very much for that. It was fascinating, genuinely fascinating. Um, I've, I have a history in political campaigning, and so I'll be interested in your thoughts as to how we can use your theories and your experience to persuade the electorate to vote a certain way. In, uh, <laughs> we're, we're taking notes, and, and particularly in uh, relation to the upcoming uh, European referendum. <laughs> <laughs> So you work for CBI, you said. Let's see. Um, right. Yeah, um, we don't do that, I should say. <laughs> so that's easy. But, um, no, I mean, we really don't. We, actually, we could formally do that now, I suppose. But as civil servants, you don't, you, know, you don't get engaged in such political matters about wordings of referendum and things like that, um, obviously. Um, has it been used? Of course, it's been very extensively used in the U.S. context. Um, particularly a very large literature, especially around campaign finance. Um, and so there's a lot out there 
um, that can be drawn on. But I said, we don't do it. I do think it's a really interesting question for CBI, by the way, on stuff on, on, um, on confidence, by the way, on, and on economics. I even think a lot of banks, you know, banks that spend a lot of time with lots of clever people from LSE who spend loads of time doing very, very careful analysis. And then ultimately the intervention is basically build someone's confidence, right? European bank. We've got to, I mean, being crass about this, and I shouldn't be doing it because I'm sure it's media, but, you know, it's, um, you have to have a plausible enough intervention that people think will work, and then it will work, right? I mean, putting it in crass terms. So I think that's quite interesting. CBI should think about what interventions that might be that you could do, maybe with some LSE colleagues. You could do a trial in relation to business confidence surveys. Anyway, it doesn't answer your question on Europe, but you could find a large literature out there which might well help you. Then the last question from the uh, upstairs. I'd like to have the um, women, woman uh, with short sleeves. Um, my name is Phoebe Juggins. I work in property development, so I have absolutely no idea what I'm saying, probably. But um, I'd just be interested to. Every, know... Everybody has the same <laughs> sense. I'd worry. be interested to know what your interrelation, if there is one, with kind of marketing and market research is, because it seems like a lot of the kind of fundamental principles and tactics that have been engaged are actually very apparent in advertising and kind of targeted brand campaigns and that kind of thing. So to what extent is this sort of doing a similar thing but with a different impetus and in a different context? Or to, and what, what kind of actually makes you different, I suppose, is... Yes, yeah, so there is clearly an overlap. I mean, two major areas, maybe three you might identify in the commercial world. One is particularly direct marketing. It's been done it for a long time. It's well-suited to testing variations. Um, I mean, a lot of it, I think, has happened... It, though in the commercial world, I should say, is more by market evolution than by deliberate experimentation. That will certainly be true for a second area, the area that Chialdini, Robert Chialdini, wrote about very extensively, which is to do with market abuses often, you know, how do, how do salesmen do the best job, how, what, what's the techniques they use, or indeed people who are scamming, what are the kind of approaches they use. And now increasingly in the digital, by the big digital giants, of course, in A-B formatting, mass trials, um, experiment variations and so on. Um, so that's all true, and to some extent you might just say it's governments waking up to something which has been going on for 50 years elsewhere. Although bearing in mind it also is governments having to intervene because of what's the acceptable limits about abusive practice. Um, you know, so a choice a comparison site, you know, um, you know, price comparison site, a choice engines we often call them, um, have a fantastically powerful role because they, it's a much easier decision for someone to make about... Um, not what pension I should have out of a million choices, but who could advise me about the pension or uh, my car insurance. But if the price comparison sites are also using some of those same techniques, so when they say to you, would you like just to see the, you know, the, the products are available to you right now, you say, oh, yeah, that would be great. And then that's used as a premise to say, we'll only show you the ones where we get a commission, right, would be an unacceptable practice. Um, that said, it is much broader than that. Um, and in particular, what we're trying to do is essentially introduce this more realistic model of human behavior into everything that government does. That goes much more broadly um, in relation to any interaction that occurs or the design of an incentive. You're going to use a tax subsidy or an incentive. Well, what is the best way of doing it? Do you do it flat or do you build it up front? Or... So there are certainly lessons from the commercial world, um, and we'd be the first to um, acknowledge that. Um, I think we're trying to use it much more widely and fundamentally 
than just that, though. Great. Let's go downstairs again, uh, and then two more from the top. Um, right it's really there. worth asking a question, because I'm finding it's very <coughs> soothing. <laughs> yeah, the shape is perfect. So, right there. Thank you. <coughs> that, the you black my, top. Rather worrying, I do wonder if it's an econ brain, because... It's, it's symmetrical, isn't it? The brain doesn't it? look exactly like that. It's not... It's a, a representation, but it's I wonder if it's the right pleasing. size, though. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. <Hello. laughs> um, my name is Victoria Jones. I am a civil servant also. Um, one of my questions is, how far do you stress test your ideas? So specifically, I'm thinking about auto-enrollment that's wheeled out by everyone as an epic success. But in 2018, when you know, we're actually starting to bite into people's salaries is it still going to be the same epic success? So do you kind of see how far we can push people with these ideas, or is it like let it roll until maybe it starts to have adverse effects? Um, I mean, by the way, just a point of clarity, so I'm formerly not a civil servant anymore, so the Behavioural Insight team is now a social purpose company, although part-owned by government. Um, but just to be, uh, So... Uh, Look, we try and do I mean, our belief is, and I, you'll gather I'm a hyper-empiricist. I sort of feel like we should be trying testing everything, and there are always so many choices and questions that remain. That's certainly true for auto-enrollment. Those who don't follow the technical details of it is that although a lot of people signed up, the initial the tapering is quite sharp. So initially it's a very small amount of money, and then it steps up, partly on the, you know, the back of the literature we've got so far. Um, there are lots of questions about that. There are questions about how fast do people who opt out, do they get back in the system, as you know. Um, there are further questions about where does it evolve to. So one of the great questions, say, this is not government policy, I should say, but I think it's an interesting idea, bring across, is it's not just long-term saving. It's one of the interesting questions, rainy day saving. Um, so, oh, actually, you had Sandal here. You know, Sandal was talking, did you catch Sandal when he was here? Any a few of you did, on scarcity. Um, about decisions often made by low-income groups that look irrational, um, in inverted commas. Um, and one of the questions is about lack of savings. And you just think, why don't someone save a tiny bit more? Um, and there's certainly interest in a number of countries and places about, well, could you use an auto-enrollment type mechanism to encourage rainy day saving, which you've got full access to? So there are so many more questions that even in that one area alone, let alone being able to assemble your pension pots and make it easy and low friction to make the market work well, um, is it all get tested? It doesn't all get tested. I mean, be lucky if a fraction of it gets tested right at the moment. That's the reality of it. So, yes, we, in general, government tiptoes forward, hopefully has a good enough evaluation. The logic and implication of this, if we are up for it, right, is that we should continue all the time be testing variations on approach in order to be able to answer those kind of questions because quite often it is our best punt. Um, and that's not bad, but we could obviously do better. Great. Now we have the, perhaps the last question because you give long answers. So Sorry. it depends on how long your answer is going to be. Okay. We can Sorry. have one or two um, more questions. One, one again from the top. Let's see. That was a good nudge. Oh, it? that's very difficult. Over there, jumping even on the chair. He definitely has to have it. Purple shirt. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Smith, no um, affiliation. So at the end of your talk, you, you mentioned about um, getting the information out there. And I just wondered how far that could go. Would you see every civil servant thinking about this, p um, putting this into action, and ultimately putting your company out of business? Because I don't need you. 
Uh, yes, is the answer. We'd like to be put out of business in that sense because we want to see civil servants using it. I mean, we expect civil servants in the future to have a more realistic account of behavioural models and behaviour you know, in general um, and about experimental methods. So ultimately, yes, that would be a success. Um, bring it on. I mean, we are quite a long way from that in terms of most areas of policy. But um, look, the LSE, you may know, is hosting, I'm doing a long answer, sorry, is doing a master's for top civil servants. It will have behavioural sort of science built into it from the outset. We should want that. Um, I think partly then just, you know, our civil servant colleagues can then just come and ask us when there's a particularly technical or difficult question. But that would be a good problem to have when people are saying, oh, my God, there's too much well-grounded empirical social science <laughs> and all this experimentation, everything's been tested carefully. Oh, I wish we had the old days back. Okay, another question from here. Let's see, from the very back. Um, tail, long tail. Hi, I'm Sophia. I'm an undergraduate at the LSE. Um, so, I, so a lot of the time during your presentation, you'd reference the fact that we need to get the support of the public um, and we need their permission to do the things that you're doing um, in this unit. Yeah. So what specifically are you doing at the moment to try and um, get that support and permission from the public and foster, um, and like foster the fact that it is a really good thing that, we're, that you're doing in this unit? Um, well, apart from writing a book and um, hoping a few people read it. Um, we do try and put our stuff out. We try and also put our protocols out. Um, uh, so we try and be generally as transparent as possible. Um, and Payable Insight Team is a small bit of the grand family of government. I think it particularly applies around lifestyle issues. So I'll just give you one response, which I think has resonance to many countries. So I mentioned we're doing a lot of stuff with the Australians. We help quite a few governments. In fact, we're doing a particular thing with, in Victoria on obesity, and they are running a deliberative forum of 100 members of the public. And the idea is, you know, how deliberative forums work or citizens, just like a big citizen's jury. So why not present all the evidence to a sample of the public, true random sample, with a media partner present over uh, several days, and then say, well, so we've shown you all this stuff. What do you now think? You could have the advice. Um, you can bring forward further evidence. What do you think is the right thing to do? So trying to create a dynamic, particularly concerning a lifestyle issue like that, which is really people's own behaviour, what do you want? Right? And I think without that, governments are sort of between a rock and a hard place on an issue like that. Because people say, what are you going to do about obesity? It's rising. You know. OK, well, we've got an idea. We're going to make plate sizes smaller and get rid of chocolate on checkout. It's like, what are you doing? You know, you'll get that reaction back the other way. Um, so, I mean, lots of people have got better things to do than read reports from the Behavioural Insight team. But I do think as kind of a wider community, it is rather important that we be open. And there is something subtly different, you might argue, about some of these behavioural approaches compared to some other policy tools, and that we should be open about that and make sure we bring the, the public with us. I mean, I don't, if you've got ideas more we should do, let us know. Great. And maybe that's one of the questions you can ask him when you're going to be coming up to the stage after the talk. This might be the last uh, question, I think. If you're worried about not getting your brain, uh, you can come back to our behavioral seminars. We will make sure that uh, randomly we will uh, give them out at some of the upcoming uh, seminars. But let's now um, thank very much, David, for a very insightful talk. And um, that was not all. So just because you've got two hands, we thought we'd give you a spare 
you know, little uh, brain squeezer. And uh, to have you remember the time with us tonight, we have also an LSE mug, because I still believe a coffee is one of the best nudges ever as an Italian. Don't leave, because I need to tell you that outside there are his books um, on sale, and if you get them and you're able to come here on time, he's going to send them for you. Just write your name uh, for uh, that would facilitate and make it very easy and attractive and social and timely. <laughs> and um, experiment, experiment, experiment is really what we both want you to tell uh, you tonight and leave home with. And you can even experiment on the tube. And you can read in the book experiments that have been done on the tube as well. So with that, thank you very much for the time you've given us. And have a very pleasant rest of your evening.